Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for that, Pastor Dave. Today, today is a good day. Today is a good day. Amen. Today is a good day. It's the day the Lord has made. I am beyond excited and, and honored to be the one that preaches the word this morning. Preaching is really one of my greatest passions in life. And even though I preached many times before, there's, there's nothing quite as special as preaching in your own home church with your family. Because you're my family. And this is a place where God has called me to serve. And I just love that. I love, I love being here. I love being in the United States. I get to learn so much from you. So much from your culture. And that's obviously not to say that I don't experience challenges. Because I do. And I experience them even here at church. As a, as a Mexican, sometimes it's hard to deal with, with a certain pastor that we have. <laughs> who is convinced that Taco Bell is legit Mexican food. <laughs> I just don't know what to do with that. I don't. The struggle is real, people. <laughs> I'm not going to point fingers at anyone. I just hope you understand my point. Pastor Dave? (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, Well, not really. But I do experience significant cultural clashes that that challenge me at my core. They challenge who I am. They challenge my identity in Christ. And they even challenge my faith. Because uh, believe it or not, every country has a very particular idea of what Christianity should look like of what a Christian person should look like, or, or dress like, or speak like, what a, what a Christian guy should do, or what a Christian woman should do. And as a church, we're wrestling with that a little bit. But as, as I face these challenges, I've learned to realize that every time, every time I face them, God opens a door for me, and he taps me on my shoulder, and he says, Hey, Gabby, don't jump into conclusions too quickly. Don't think of it in just one narrow way. Come to me. Ask me, bring me into the picture, and I will show you what to do. Let me work with your heart as we work together. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. About that beautiful, yet challenging and painful process of constantly being transformed by the power of God. Sounds good? Great. So let's go to our Bibles to Luke 13, chapter 1 through 9. I know that Pastor Dave always gives you the page in your Bibles, um, in the Pew Bibles, but I am not going to do that. We need to learn how to find it. So go to your Bibles, Luke 13, verse 1. Are you there? You're quick. Good. All right, let us read. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others um, living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went um, to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit in this fig tree and have not found any. 
cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, great. If not, then cut it down. All right. So what's going on here? Let us take a step back now and remember that in this passage, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and as he's going, he's teaching because that, that's what he does, right? And today we are in chapter 13, which means that for a while, he's been announcing the good news for the poor, to the poor. He's been performing miracles. He's been talking about the kingdom of God that it's at hand. He's been saying all these great things, but here's a group of people that's saying, yes, but... Yes, Jesus, we hear you. We, we, we hear your words, but did you hear about what happened to the Galileans? Did you, like, by any chance, heard a rumor? Rumor has it. <laughs> Only Adele fans get that. <laughs> I'm one of them. But anyway, they're saying this, right? Or did you, did you by any chance, did you, did you? Now, granted, the text does not show the exact question they asked, but they were either demanding an explanation from Jesus or trying to help him out with a, with a reality check. <laughs> and you know, and I know that because that's what we do. That's, that's what we all do. The moment tragedy hits us, we go, what? God, why did you allow that? Why did that happen? Do you not know that this thing is overwhelming? Do you, do you not know that this tragedy is ending with my marriage or with myself or with my kids? Do you not know? We all do that, don't we? Now, we do it uh, in, internally with our own struggles and we also do it collectively when a massive tragedy hits a nation or, or a society like a, like a killing in, in Roseburg. Or the shootings in California. These are massive tragedies that shake societies. And even though they don't necessarily hit us physically, they nonetheless affect us. They make us wonder. So that's what was happening with these people. They were wrestling with the news headlines of the day. Pontius Pilate, the political leader at that time, the person that was in charge of keeping control, of keeping the city safe, had brutally killed a group of Galileans as they were minding their own business in their own temple. Now, if you know anything about Pilate, you know that he was a brutal character. He, he really was. He was the very face of evil. And the tragedy he had just committed was tantamount to what happens when we see the beheading of innocent people in the hands of ISIS. Very similar to that. And when we hear tragedies like that, or any kind of tragedy for that matter, we tend to have many questions we want to ask God. But we also tend to jump into conclusions that don't always reflect the heart of God. And that is what Jesus was addressing in this passage. That's what he was after. Look at, it, his, look at his response in verse 2. He says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? So what he's basically saying is, Really? Really? That's what you think? That these people somehow deserved it? That they earned it? Now, we, we can't really blame these people because they were simply following their own Jewish tradition. 
their own Jewish way of thinking because in their theology of suffering, if something happened to you, if a tragedy happened to you, it was just the reflection of a sin you had committed. That was it. And now for some of us, this may seem like an ancient way of thinking, but it's very much alive today. And this message is for us because the flip side of that thinking is that if tragedy is a reflection of one's sin, then absence of tragedy is a reflection of some kind of piety or self-righteousness. And you know what that is? That is a model of salvation based on works. That's what it is. A model of salvation, a way of doing life where we are the masters of our own faith. Jesus knew that. He knew that's where their minds were going. Were going. So he says in verse th- uh, 3, I tell you, no! But unless you repent, you too will all perish. You think your self-righteousness is going to keep you safe, but I'm telling you no, because unless you repent, you will all perish. Because no matter how hard you try or how righteous you may be, you still live in a world that's tainted by sin, and tragedy is going to hit you, no matter what. It will. Like the 18 people he refers to in the next verse. These 18 people died because the tower fell on them. And in this, in this situation, there's no one to blame. This is more like a, like a natural disaster. He uses this example, but he could have used anything else. He could have used another kind of a, a disease, a car accident, a cancer. You name it. But what's interesting here is that the answer is the exact same. He says, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, let me be honest with you. The first time I read this passage, I went, whoa. Is that what you call the good news? Repent or perish. That sounds super drastic to me. That sounds like a threat. Does that ever happen to you? You read the Bible and the first thing you understand, you don't even second guess it, you don't study, you just go with it. So I want to give you just a quick uh, parenthesis to tell you about a super, super, super basic rule of biblical theology, which says that if you want to interpret a passage, however short or obvious it may seem, you need to read it in light of the whole canon because that's what makes it biblical. Not taking one passage and just going with it as if it it were in isolation from the rest of the scripture. Not copying a passage and pasting it into our own agenda. Because we do that. Biblical theology says, no, you need to go back to the text. Go back to the text. What is the greater narrative saying? And the greater narrative says that God is kind. That God is good. That God is merciful. He gives us opportunities. He forgives us. So how can we reconcile the words of Jesus in this passage with the greater narrative? Our key word here is the word repent. I want to invite you to unpack this word with me because it is a pregnant word that's charged with meaning. It's loaded with significance that we cannot see at first sight. So we're going to study it. It's actually um, the key to understanding the whole passage and I dare say the entire gospel. The word in Greek is metanoia. 
Meta means after or change. And noia means, comes from nos, which literally means mind. So the, the literal translation is a change of mind. And this, this uh, word carries this notion of transformation into something new, a new mindset. And we need to be careful with the word mind here because in ancient times, the words uh, mind and heart were used interchangeably. And so what, what this word really means, the biblical sense of metanoia, it's, it's, it's talking about a complete transformation of who we are into the image of who God is. Richard Trench defined it as a mighty change of mind, heart, and life that can only be brought about by the Spirit of God. Amen. A mighty change of mind and heart and life and lifestyle and desires and passions and things you talk about that can only be brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow! That is a big word. It is a big word. But the bad news is that this word has gotten lost in translation throughout the centuries. Because against this backdrop of human transformation, the word that we get in English is repent. Repent. And I I don't think that's fair. I don't think that word is fair. And you're about to find out why. Because today I want to do something slightly different. We usually study the words in, in the original Greek or Hebrew, and that's great. We need to do that. But what I want to do today is to study it in English as well. And I want to do that for two reasons. One, I'm a Spanish speaker and I always need to do that. And two, it's going to show us how language has this power to shape our thoughts and even our theology. And if we do a poor job at choosing a word, we can completely destroy the message we're trying to send. There's a story um, that I want to share with you where I learned this, the importance of language. And it happened when I was in seminary in Virginia a few years back. And I was part of this uh, student council. We were trying to come up with ideas of what to do at the beach. We were going to have a, like a retreat. So I started brainstorming. And then I said, I have an idea. And everybody paid attention to me. And I said, how about we go to the beach at night. And then we light up a huge fire bun. And you're all quiet. You're trying to be so respectful. (laughs) And the moment, because the moment I said that, people started to look at me funny. And I'm going, what's wrong with my idea? And someone said, ah, do you mean bonfire? And I said, "Mm mm-mm, I mean fire bun, buddy. He's like, Gabby, you know, here's this English speaker telling me I'm saying it wrong and I am convinced I'm right. And I said, look, I've been studying English for 10 years now. And when you say railroad, you're talking about a road made out of rails. When you say wood house, you're talking about a house made out of wood. So when I say fire bun, I'm talking about a bun made out of fire. (laughs) Duh. I just kept insisting and insisting and insisting. And you know what? There is nothing worse than a confident person that is ignorant. (laughs) There's nothing worse than that. So please don't be that. And if you come across one, stay away. (laughs) We're dangerous people. (laughs) But anyway, the story does not end there. 
sadly. So as they kept insisting that the word was bonfire, I said, all right, okay, whatevs, bonfire. We can make one of those, and then we can sit around it, we can play some worship tunes, we can share our testimonies, and then at the end of the day, we pull the marshmallows, the chocolate, the crackers, and then, boom, we end the night with some Smurfs. <laughs> and everybody lost it. And they're like, ah, and I'm, what? I'm going, what? They're like, Smurfs? And oblivious Gabby goes, Oh, you don't know what Smurfs are? Come on, that's an American thing. It's a kumbaya thing you do in this country. And they said, It's s'mores. I said, Oh, it's kind of similar. But anyway, that day I learned a big lesson about the importance of choosing our words carefully. And if that applies to a regular life, how much more? Does it apply to studying the Bible? Right? Right? Good. So let's dig into the English word, repentance. What does it really mean? I have a feeling you're not going to like this. So you've been warned. The word comes from Latin. And it's made out of two words, re, which means back or again, and penitentia, which literally means penance. And the root word for penance is pain and sorrow. I told you, you were not going to like this. In fact, the Oxford Dictionary defines it as the action of feeling or showing sorrow and regret for having done wrong. So basically, repentance, in its literal sense, says that our job is to look back at what we've done and feel bad about it. Feel real bad about it and granted so many people may need a little bit of that just to realize how bad they've been but the word has a very strong negative connotation it evokes regret and contrition of heart and then it just ends there in regret and you know when i first became a christian when I started to read the Bible and when I read about all these wonderful women of God that were so brave, they said yes to him. They, they stepped into the destiny and the gifting and the power that God had for them. People like um, Mary or Elizabeth or Deborah, the judge Deborah, this brave woman. When I read about their lives, I so wanted to identify myself with them. I wanted to see my, myself in them, in their lives. But when I looked at my life, and if I was honest with myself, I knew that I was, I was more like a Jacob. I was a cheater. I cheated. I cheated in school. I cheated when I played games. And I also cheated on people. Many times. That's the person I was. That's the kind of person I was. And every time I cheated on someone... I genuinely regretted it. I did. Let's just say I repented because I felt real bad about it. I cried. I could not believe I had just done it. But you know what? Soon enough, I would find myself doing it all over again. My life was just a vicious cycle of repenting and repenting and repenting without ever getting anywhere. Are you familiar with that cycle? We all know it. We all have an area in our lives 
that just keeps us messing with, with ourselves or with others. We make a mistake, we feel bad about it. We make it again, we feel bad about it. We make it again, we feel bad about it. And so people go with, for years doing life like that. For some people, it, it may be cheating or lying to people. For others, it may be watching porn or stealing or remaining in a relationship that you know is no bueno. Maybe it's a self-deprecating habit you have or a yo-yo diet that keeps you regretting every bite of food you have. It could be anything, really. And even though you know you shouldn't do it, you just end up doing it again. As I said, and again, and again, and again. And you know why is that? Because regret cannot take you very far. But metanoia can. That is a drastic difference. You see, the word repentance forces you to look back at what you've done and beat yourself up for it. But metanoia invites you into the future and look at the promises that God has for you. And when you do that, everything changes. When we understand that, we realize that in this passage, the words of Jesus are not words of condemnation, but words of invitation into a new life, a greater life, a full life with them. He was not saying, do this or I'll throw you off the cliff. He's not saying that. He's saying, you're already down there. You're already down there and I don't care how self-righteous you are or how big of a sinner you are. You cannot experience life unless you do it with me and through me. Because I am the way, I am the light, I am the truth and no one comes to the Father except through me. Amen? Amen. That sounds more like good news, doesn't it? It does. It does. What Jesus was saying was this. Hey, I did not come here just to give you an explanation of what happens around you. I'm here to tell you how transformation can happen within you. I am after that. And the moment you realize that, your entire worldview changes. And soon you begin to realize that the tragedies you see happening around you, they're not proof that I don't exist. They're the evidence you need to realize how much you need me. Shift. It's a shift. It's a shift of mind. You see, metanoia is our doorway to the gospel. Again, let's go back to scriptures and the larger narrative. Every time Jesus spoke about salvation and the coming of God's kingdom, he talked about metanoia as a precondition for it. In Matthew 4, 17, when Jesus began to preach, he said, Metanoia, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. In Acts 3.19, Peter said to the people, Metanoia, and turn, to, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Even John the Baptist talked about this. When Paul refers to him, he says the baptism um, of John, it's a baptism of metanoia. We, we, we know it as a baptism of repentance, but the Bible says it's a baptism of metanoia. And so the question that still remains, a question that I just had to ask myself, because I had to, is this one. If repentance is such a far cry from the true meaning of metanoia, 
How on earth did we end up with that word in our Bibles? Now, what we're going to do now, we're going to do a little bit of history, and we're going to do it differently. Because usually when we do history, we do it in terms of wars or in terms of uh, empires or huge political events, but we hardly ever do it in terms of language. And now we know how powerful it is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the history of how the Bible was translated into English in exactly three minutes. You can count. And I'm going to ask you to track with me because I'm going to do it like Speedy Gonzalez. Muy rapido. Are you ready? Are you going to track with me? All right, let's do it. In 1380... John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English for the first time. And the word that he chose for this passage was penance. Now, we, we know now that that wasn't the best choice, but we can't blame the guy. He was not translating from Greek. He was translating from the Vulgate, which is the Latin version of the Bible. In 1530, William Tyndale translated the entire New Testament, and he thought, hmm, how about changing that word to repent? I'm not even going to say anything about that. By 1535, Miles Coverdale translated the Bible again and said, I'm sure we can do a better job here. I'm sure we can find a better term. So he used the word amend. And that's great because that word talks about changing or fixing something for good, for better. So at at that point, there was still hope for English speakers. (laughs) Fast forward to 1539, the Great Bible was published. And the only reason why it was called the Great Bible is because that thing was massive. It was about this big. So it was great bible and the translation of that version went back to repent now don't ask me why they did that but we at least begin to see a thread you see it you don't see it there's a line (laughs) anyway in 1560 A group of Protestant reformers published the Geneva Bible, and these guys knew better, so they went back to amend, because that's a better word. And they actually included footnotes and marginal notes uh, on this Bible, and because of that, this version became one of the most famous versions in all Europe. However, in 1611, King James of England said, "Uh Uh-uh, we are the Anglican Church, and we need our own Bible. So he put together a group of translators, and they went back, to repent. And by doing that, they kind of seal this linguistic tradition of using the word repent. Because as many of you know, the King James Version really became the version. The Bible that people should read. And I mean, it, it had been institutionalized by the king, so it kind of makes sense. But it remained the most influential version for English speakers to this day, really. Most of, most of our modern translations continue to follow this thread and use the word repent. And you know all these versions. Among them you have the NIV, New International Version, the ESV, English Standard Version, the NLT, New Living Transba- Translation, NASB, New American Standard Bible, Holmes Christian Bible, um, American Standard Version, New King James Version, obviously. But anyway, you all know them because... Those versions are part of the list of the top 10 Bibles sold in the United States. There's a few other versions that I know I need to mention because they either use the word change or turn. And those versions are the message, the voice, the international children's Bible. We should all be reading children's Bibles. The common English Bible, among others. 
So that's our timeline. Did you like it? Good. This time, thank you. This timeline was brought to you by Gabby Vieska. (laughs) Now, the point of the timeline is not to decide which word is correct word, because I don't even think that's possible. That that word metanoia is so rich, we need an entire definition to describe it. My point here is to see how tradition has a way of getting into our bones without us even realizing it. And let me be clear here. I'm not saying that tradition is wrong. That is not at all what I'm saying. What I am suggesting, though, is that we should always be open to revisit our tradition and our own ways of thinking about Jesus or Christianity because with God there is always something new to learn. Amen. Absolutely. Always. As Christians, we should always be aware that when it comes to our faith, our primary concern is not being right or wrong. It's knowing that we are loved by God. And if we miss this part, we miss the entire message of the gospel. So please don't miss it. It is because of God's love for us that metanoia is even possible. We shouldn't even have that opportunity, but we do have it in Christ, in Him. And in the face of our own mistakes and failure, Jesus is the one that shows up to tell you whatever's happened to you or whatever you've done, I'm still committed to you. I'm still committed to work with you. I'm still committed to save you. And you know why is that? Because I love you. I love you. Let us look at the parable at the end of the passage. Because I think it it really reflects this love of God for us. And it says, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, for three years, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and have not found any. So cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? But sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it and if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. Again, if we read this parable with the mindset of the law, we can very well read a threat here. But if we read it with the mindset of grace, we can only see an opportunity the opportunity we have before us the, uh, of en- engaging and welcoming that tremendous grace that Jesus offers to us. Because even when we fail at producing good fruit, He still intercedes for us. He's still there to give us a second chance. He's still there to say, Hey, sir, don't cut this one down just yet. Leave her alone for one more year and I'll do my best at providing fertilizer and the right conditions for her to bread the fruit, the bear the fruit that is needed. Now, there's one thing that we simply cannot miss in this in this parable, and that's the fact that there is a final judgment. There is, there is no way around that. Okay, but today's message is about grace and the opportunity we have to turn our lives around with the power of God's Spirit in us. The opportunity is now. He may not be here tomorrow because we may not be here tomorrow. Only God knows that. 
But this text says to us, the opportunity is now, today. Today. Today is your chance to recognize that only Jesus can change your life around. Because whatever it is you've done, or whatever's happened to you, you had all been paid for in the cross. So I want to give you a chance to make that decision again. To make a decision for Christ. And maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but some, somewhere along the road you, you just lost your way. And maybe you're, you're a new Christian and you still don't know how to navigate these waters. Maybe you just want to start again. Start anew. Start afresh. Today is the opportunity. And sometimes people ask people to stand up. Sometimes people ask them to raise their hand or come forward. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, but I am going to ask you that if you want to make a decision for God, there is power in showing that in front of others. There is power in having a physical movement as something that reflects what you're thinking and the decision you're making. So if you're that person right now, you can raise your hand. You can raise your hand and ask God that you need him. You can raise your hand and say, I cannot do this on my own. I don't even know how to. I've tried and tried and tried and I just keep messing up. But Lord, here I am saying that I am yours and I need you. The opportunity is today. Now. Now I'm not just giving you an example of what you should do. I am raising my hand with you. Because I'm saying, God, I need you. I need you as much as any other person here in the room. I've tried for years and I've tried many things on my own and it takes me nowhere. So I just want to declare that you are the way. You are the truth and you are my light. So God, I just want to thank you for that tremendous grace you've shown us. For that love, that mighty love you continually show to us even when we don't deserve it. Lord, we want to say that we need you. That we want to take a step forward and as we do it, we don't want to do it alone. We want you to hold our hands and deal with our hearts as we partner in this. We declare and recognize that you died for us. That whatever it is we've done, it's being paid for. We believe in you. We believe in you. And we thank you for the work you are doing in our hearts. We ask you to never give up on us. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, that's something we got to celebrate. Yes. Praise God. Praise God. So in this spirit of celebration, let us all partake of God's communion. And, and I'm going to ask you to come forward and grab your elements and hold on to them. Because we're going to take communion together. And as you do that, I'm going to ask you to do something. You know, I always have to throw a challenge out there. So I'm going to ask you to bring your old thoughts, your old self, your old being and to bring them to the cross. Because there's something about the cross that is powerful. You see, what dies on the cross, I mean, what gets nailed on the cross, dies. What gets nailed on the cross, dies. 
But what dies on the cross resurrects with new life and hope. You can, you can go ahead. Hey, you can go ahead and clap. That's the kind of God we have. A God that has the power to transform our entire lives around. And it happens through and because of the cross. So please come forward and hold on to your elements to have communion together.